Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Jews on Film. As always, I'm Harry. As always, I'm a, fil- a former film major. I am a-, a current Jew. And as always, I'm joined by Daniel. So, uh, Daniel, why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks, Harry. I'm Daniel Zana, a former film student, current filmmaker and video editor and nascent podcaster. I'm excited today to, to be discussing broadcast news with our guest, Gil Barron, and he is a producer of a show called Your Late Night Show Tonight. It's a comedy show that has rotating comedians, and we'll get to talking a little bit more about that, but I want to welcome him on. Hi, Gil. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I love this show. Thanks so much. I uh, appreciate that. I'm expecting this is at least a little bit of an audition for the Fiddler episode. At some point, that's your big season finale, right? And at some point, okay. you're going to have a contest of guests and you're going to find out who's the best guest, who's going to do the Jewish film among all Jewish films, right? Season finale, 100th episode. Like, we might yeah. have to just invite back all the former guests because everyone has thoughts on Fiddler. So yeah. we're saving it for a good one. I mean, we have to go 100 episodes before we do Fiddler. That's insane. I love it. We'll find a way. I mean, it's interesting that you said that Fiddler was like the gold standard of like, for me, my mind always goes to like Schindler's List, but maybe there's just like less to say about it. I don't know. There's probably a lot to say about both. I don't know. I guess what do you define as like the essential Jewish experience? Because Schindler's List is, I would say, the king of Holocaust films. Sure. Right. So is our Judaism defined by the Holocaust or is it defined by the experience in the Pale of Settlement, you know, the experience, which, by the way, also, you know, ends with like, you know, pogrom. Always mired. Yeah. Mired in some tragedy. It's mired in tragedy. Yeah. I mean, that's I've said this before on other episodes, but like I didn't grow up with Holocaust as being like part of my background and I'm half Sephardic, half Ashkenaz. So like the Fiddler experience is like only sort of you know relevant uh to me but i, I still haven't seen it which is like crazy oh you're really good you're really in for something because it's a great film it's a great musical they are apparently doing another adaptation of it uh with uh one of the creators of hamilton okay wow yeah. we need another version though I mean, do we need another Hamlet every few years? Do we need another, you know, that's okay. It's, these are reinterpretations. I thought the new West Side Story was fantastic. I didn't see it. Um, I, I, did I such a great job. Okay, now I have to see it. Now add it to my list of movies I got to see. Before we dive into it, I have like two questions. The first question is, let's let's go back to Little Gil wearing suspenders <laughs> and short pants. Yeah, and, that's uh, as a young as a young lad uh, growing up uh, in California, safe, right? Yeah. Okay. Up in San Fernando Valley. Yeah, there you go. Eight one eight represent. So, what did what did Jewish film mean to you, like growing up? You know, I remember uh, my parents renting like two movies, kind of over and over again. I don't understand why they never just bought the movies. But one was Fiddler and the other was the jazz singer, the, the 1979 version of the jazz singer, which is an insane film. And maybe if we have a good time today, if you like me, we'll come back and talk about that one. Cause that's the 79 version. Remind me who's in that one. Oh yes. The great, the wonderful Neil Diamond, the Jewish Elvis. Ah, okay. He Interesting. The, he plays the, uh, Al Jolson role. Mm-hmm. 
It's crazy. It's crazy, you guys. Is it crazy good or just crazy bad or just crazy? It's crazy in all ways. The, the fact that he decided to remake that film, which, you know, the two famous things about the jazz singer are one, the first movie was sound and B, yeah. blackface. Those are the two things people remember from it. And, you know, guess which part he decided to pay homage to? There is an homage to blackface in the uh, Neil Diamond version. So, yeah, we will have a conversation. Yeah, I I definitely need to add that. I feel like after talking to you for what, like 10 minutes, I've already got like six movies on my list. I should say for those who are listening, Gil and I went to film school together. So if you're wondering why you are like a font of film knowledge, it's because you are also a a, a film 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 geek. Yeah, so I think we were talking about today was for sure from that collection of stuff. So, you know, my parents were, you know, they weren't like media savvy people. They didn't like the best films. They didn't expose us to like the greatest films of all time. They had, you know, a taste that was like, are there Jews in it? And are there not a lot of cuss words in it? Mm -hmm. Literally, you know, any movie I've ever recommended to my parents, they've come back to me and said, it was good, but why do they have to say fuck so many times? You know, that's that's generally uh, the extent of their film criticism. Got it. Okay. And now, now the, now the real burning question, Harry, do you want to ask it or should I? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll jump in with it because uh, this was something Daniel and I were both wondering, having seen broadcast news for the first time ahead of the recording of this podcast, but you know, we've watched a couple movies for this podcast, the ones that, you know, the Yentles, the Frisco kids that are very, very Jewish movies. And we've definitely had our fair share of stretches where it's, you know, there's a couple Jewish characters and this has a Jewish vibe to it. But is it really a Jewish film? And uh, I don't think either of us felt that way as strongly as we did for broadcast news, which, you know, of course, Albert Brooks. And, uh, you know, you know, there is some Jewishness to it. And it's it's easy to see where, you know, what might be a sort of launching point into calling mm-hmm. this a Jewish film. But right. Not many Jewish characters, not many explicit Jewish themes, although I'm sure we'll come up with some some stretches down the line. But uh, our, our opening question for you, Gil, is what made you choose this for the Jewish film you wanted to discuss on our podcast? Well, I had recently watched it and we were talking about films back and forth and having recently watched it, because this is one of the films that I saw in film school that was like. You watch this because of the script. You really watch this because of the sparkling dialogue. It's really great for actor scenes. You know, actors use uh, stuff from this uh, movie a lot um, when they're um, when they're doing monologues and stuff. Um, and I just recently watched it and found myself having such a completely different experience watching it than when I first saw it when I was 21, 22. And at that point, I was so impressed with the dialogue and the pace and the direction and all of the, the James L. Brooks of it all and, and, and everything that's in it. And here almost 20 years later, watching it again, I was like really disappointed in it. And this is a film that now like is on some of the, you know, the lists of like the greatest comedies of all time, the greatest romances of all time. It's on all of these lists. And I think through the lens of having grown up and sort of, um, uh, in, in all the myriad ways, I think that it just does not live up to what it used to. And I think that's why it was at the front of my mind. But I think in terms of like Jewish representation in this film, the only it's, he's not even overt. He's coded Jewish is Albert Brooks's sure. character. Yep. Um, I think it plays into a lot of the tropes that were going on with Jewish characters 
in the late 80s, early 90s, which I know your last guest on the City Slicker, the City Slickers episode, got into a little bit of this conversation too, just mm-hmm. talking about how, you know, there were so many Jewish coded characters who would bend over backwards to never ever say the word Jewish. And I think right. kind of have the same thing here. So I think that we're going to be talking about broadcast news in a highly critical way. I don't think we're going to be like, oh, this is the greatest thing of all time. I don't think we're going to be gushing about this film. Uh, obviously, it's, you know, it's a classic for a reason, but I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. So that's really why I wanted to talk about this. As you know, I want my hat in the ring for Fiddler. Uh, <laughs> I want my hat in the ring for the jazz singer, the 1979 version. Okay. And, uh, you know, I have to be on the short list for Dirty Dancing because I think that film is anti-Semitic. You just missed the bus. We recorded that one last week with Emily Alhadif. Uh, so by the time this is released, you'll probably be able to listen to it and okay, let us know on. what you thought. But uh, I'm so curious to hear about that, the anti-Semitic take. Before we dive into it, why don't we take a quick break and uh, get some water and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We're here today with Gil Barone talking about broadcast news. Harry, before we dive into the movie itself and talk about being coded Jewish and all that good stuff. Why don't you read for us your patented IMDb summary of broadcast news? Sure. And after watching broadcast news, I'm going to try to deliver it with some, you know, with some emphasis, like I'm a, like I'm a newscaster and make sure you sit on your, sit on your coattails. I'll sit on my coat. I'll try not to sweat profusely. And uh, it's a good thing. This is an audio medium and not a visual one because none of that actually matters. So uh, I still use that. You know, if I'm wearing a suit and I'm like on camera or something, I, I'll sit on those coattails. That's a lesson I learned from this movie. It's a great tip. You know, in, in the Zoom world we find ourselves in right now, I wish I wish I had seen this movie two years ago. It's right. really it's good to know. So uh, here comes the summary. Uh, it reads Basket Case Network news producer Jane Craig falls for new reporter Tom Grunick, a pretty boy who represents the trend towards entertainment news she despises. Aaron Altman, a talented but plain correspondent, carries an unrequited torch for Jane. Sparks fly between the three as the network prepares for big changes, and both the news and Jane must decide between style and substance. Thank you so much for that, Harry. Appreciate it. So broadcast news, as Harry said, we have Albert Brooks as Aaron Altman. We have William Hurt as Tom Grunick and Holly Hunter as Jane Craig. Most of the film kind of revolves around their relationship. We have auxiliary characters um, like Joan Cusack and Robert Prosky and all these other Jack Nicholson is in a few scenes here and there. Fun fact, the two composers in the film, like later on, who were doing like that sort of synthy demo, I think they actually did the whole score for the film. So this was their like nerdy little cameo. But yeah, I think Gil, where where do you want to get started? I find that the character development of this film to be fascinating. And I told you guys that, you know, I think on rewatch, I think that a lot of stuff doesn't age really well, but I do think that the writing of this is so clever and interesting because the characters, I think, I think the characters have not aged well. I think they've become less likable over time than they were maybe meant to be, but they are super, super three-dimensional. So you start when all three of them are children. Right. You have this sort of prologue uh, to this movie Mm -hmm. and it teaches you so much about the psychoses of these characters, the psyches of these characters. And so that's where we start. And uh, it's interesting having our one Jewish coded character, Aaron, 
starts off uh, at his high school graduation. He graduates high school early and gives this really mean speech, right, you know, right. being like, uh, you know, fuck all y'all, essentially, I forgive you. It's it's so condescending what he says to these kids. And then the next scene is him getting beat up. Uh, right. Uh, Aaron getting beat up by his friends or by his co-students. And you almost can't blame them because he was so shitty to them. Uh, <laughs> sort of foreshadowing his relationship with other people in the yeah. future, you know? A theme that I saw in this movie this time that I watched it was charisma, just as a theme generally. Because, you know, you've got this character, Aaron, who is super hardworking, naturally smart, very funny, cutting wit. But he doesn't have whatever the magic is to get people to like him, even just in person, even one on one. Like people just don't like this guy. And that's just so fascinating to me as this character, because I think in almost any other movie, this character would be our hero. But he does things in this movie that are so shitty. He behaves in such a shitty way throughout the movie that like you don't like him either. You know, right. I could see this as a, this guy as a character in a Judd Apatow movie, but here you're they put a pretty harsh spotlight on him mm-hmm. that he's like he's condescending. He's just yeah. yeah. It reminds me of a little bit later in the film. There's a line delivered by Holly Hunter's Jane character, where one of the characters asks her. Now, Aaron spent six weeks in Tripoli. He's interviewed Gaddafi. He reported on the 81 story. I think he's essential to do the job we're capable of. And I I think it's my responsibility to tell you that. Okay, that's your opinion. I don't agree. It's not opinion. You're just absolutely right. And I'm absolutely wrong. It must be nice to always believe you know better. To always think you're the smartest person in the room. And there's definitely a vibe from these characters. I mean, especially, you know, Aaron, you're describing where he has this very condescending smartest in the room and everyone kind of hates him for it, where it's it's like as and obviously this is a big theme of the film as the world is moving towards this sort of glossier, more fabricated news that's a little bit punchier. It's the people that, you know, have this not not only integrity, it's this a little bit sense of self-importance that are a little bit being left behind. And it's the people that have charisma, the people that are naturally charismatic, that are more entertaining. You know, it reminds me of jumping around a little bit of that scene when all the news reporters at the conference, like applaud the Domino's video and refuse. Oh, to right. She's like, no, no, that's not the point. That's not the yeah. Point. But that's, like just, that's just what they want. They want right. the easier thing. They want the, right. the fun, the charisma, exactly what you're saying. I was thinking about that scene too, where she says, no, it's awful. And you know, that's such a fun line, right? Like if that was in an Aaron Sorkin show you'd be like oh she won that argument but that's an argument she lost you know like it's such a it's like it's a cutting line it's a great witty line but she doesn't win that fight like he's like Mm -hmm. well i'm sorry i'm still right i'm your boss and we're gonna put you know william hurt on the show instead of uh albert brooks um you know and it ends up being the right decision because albert brooks can't handle being a spoiler alert but yeah for sure i mean i think uh just to step back a little bit you know we we start out once everyone has grown up they are in a newsroom a high stakes or high pressure i should say a high pressure news situation in washington dc and i thought one of the I, i thought it was like a really nice way to kind of open up the movie where like the the stress of editing the show live and then like running tapes across the room and like 
throwing a tape to Joan Cusack, who's like yelling into a phone and she's got, we got five minutes, we got five minutes. And then she finishes up an edit. She throws in a Chiron, does this and that and the other. We have a minute and a half. It's my responsibility to tell the control room and New York that we won't be ready. Uh-uh, we'll be ready. In 84 seconds, 15 seconds. Oh, God. You're saying, oh, God. Lay it in, Bobby, back out. They're going to go up and the screen will be black, and they're going to go to black because we're not there. What about careers, huh? We're not going to make it. Whoops. Whoops. Bobby, 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 there's so much DNA of this in sports night specifically. And I do feel like uh, I, I want to touch on this at some point, but one of the recurring scenes that we see is that sort of Jane, when she's by herself, takes cries. a moment and just like cries. She just yeah. like sobs. And I wanted to discuss that. My take on it is that the stress of everything is just too much to bear and she needs to be by herself to kind of let it out, but yeah. can't really show that to her coworkers. As a woman in this time period, I should say it's 1987, the film came out and right around 1980 was when CNN was founded. You know, as personalities are becoming more of a thing, maybe the film was a lot more. I mean, it is even relevant now today, you know, when you have like Fox News and these people are correspondents and they have personalities around them. But back to the crying, I think I wanted to get your takes on the, on, on Jane's crying and, and what your you know thoughts on that were. I, I man, I. You know, I thought, uh, you know, 20 years ago when I watched it, I was like, wow, what a great character she is. Such a, a strong character. And that those things are so interesting to see her like in her life. But she's also a pretty shitty person. Right. She has she has uh, is such a hypocrite about like, you know, she has this high minded thing of wanting the news to be better. And she thinks she's better than all of this. She she doesn't have these sort of uh, primal whatever things. But. She, the first chance she gets, throws herself at William Hurd, mm-hmm. even though he's he really quite admits to her, like, no, I'm a dummy and I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, the first person who, like, is even nice to her in the beginning, she's like, oh, and where, how about my back rub? Like, he wants to have a real conversation with her. And she's like, yeah, let's, but let's definitely have sex. <laughs> um, and so weird the way, I mean, it's, it's fascinating the way they explore this character and it's so consistent throughout the movie, but the character has this sense of hypocrisy. So when at the end spoilers, when she's finally makes a stand for what she says she stands for, which is integrity in the news. um, It almost makes sense that six, seven years later, she's now going to go ahead and work with William Hurt. She's like, she was willing to like, that's going to keep her from being in a relationship with him but she's still going to work with the guy. She knows what he is and she's still going to be his news producer. Right. What what I think is interesting about some of what you were saying, you know, her just sort of willingness to, you know, have sex with him and kind of like put that all aside. And then her willingness. It's just, she's like eagerness. And you know, when, um, when Jennifer asks her, is there a thing between you guys? Can I be with him? She protects him a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Bye. So I, I think, 
I think it actually does connect to what you were talking about, Daniel, with the crying a little mm-hmm. bit. And like that, that's kind of how I read it, where it feels like the entire is sort of throughout the beginning of the film. She has her emotions and her work professionalism completely at odds because, <laughs> right, she can't her crying can't happen in the workplace. It has to be sort of confined to these like five minute, you know, alone time, whatever. And mm-hmm. and her relationships, she she doesn't think of them as crossing over with her work. And a lot of her early relationship with Tom, it's not like he doesn't show his cards in the beginning of the film. He always was this like slick, you know, didn't have the same sort of work integrity. It was the signs were always there, but she's very comfortable kind of isolating her standards and her work professionalism from her, you know, emotional romantic connections in the beginning of the film. And I think what you're saying, but just what you were saying a little bit about the growth of her character, I think by the end of it, she learns to integrate those two in a way where a, she can, you know, see this relationship for what it is and kind of push him away when she realizes that it doesn't align with her values the other half of the time. But that's also when we actually see her cry in front of people sort of for the first time at the end of the film, because she's finally kind of allowed herself to have to treat her life almost holistically as opposed to compartmentalized like she had earlier. You know, she can't, like you said, she can't cry because she's just one of the guys, you know, she's one of the boys. Like there's nothing about her in the film that screams like femininity in terms of, you know, at least what one would think of like classical, you know, uh, the classical idea of like, you know, what femininity means in terms of like being caring and nurturing and kind of like shy and whatever. She's very much an aggressor. She's pursuing him. She's sort of the mentor at the beginning. Like he's asking her for all these tips and she's like, well, no, like you're a dummy. Why would I help you? But then eventually something clicks and she like, she has those, she has eyes for him and then she starts to pursue him and things like that. But yeah, I don't think she's treated any differently at work than any of the other male colleagues, which there are many of them. I think there's only a few people. Um, There's Blair, who's played by Joan Cusack, and then Jennifer, who gets sent off to Alaska. But she's more of an on-camera person. Um, Jane, behind the scenes, is kind of running the show. So, yeah. I don't know. When she makes that switch with Tom, to me, it felt very selfish. It didn't feel like a learning thing when she switches from like, no, I'm not going to help you to now. I do want to help you. If she had that like one moment of, okay, we kind of vibe, you know, as producer slash puppet anchor. And now I can see myself with you sexually again. Right. And so she wants to get close to him. So I saw like a lot of the selfishness there. I didn't, there wasn't a lot of like honor to her character to me. Right. I still felt like she was a really three dimensional character. And I thought that's why I still like the movie generally, because all three of these characters, you really get the sense of who they are from all different shades. I don't know that I would call any of them likable. I can't say that I was rooting for, for any of them. You know, I, I was remembering Tom prologue, you know, when he's a little kid and, that moment of like, I will, I will, I will, I will. And oh, this guy's a psychopath for sure. And everything that Aaron says about him, about like, he's the devil, like it's sour grapes, but it's also true. The idea of like ethics and, and sort of the Etehara, like the evil inclination and the good inclination, we're getting already into stretch territory. But I feel like, you know, one, one could say that Aaron is sort of the, the good you know, the good inclination and Tom is sort of, you know, in some ways the, the evil and inclination, I feel like the, the problem is that like he has the goods, you know, like he's good looking, he can deliver the news on screen, 
And so ultimately that's what, you know, it's like style over substance. And like, as we proceed through the film, Jane and Tom and Aaron work together in some capacity and, uh, you know, Aaron and Jane go to, um, to, I believe to Nicaragua and they report on a story. And so they get like a lot of publicity and they get a lot of, uh, praise from their boss and from Jack Nicholson who plays Bill Rorish. And so they, they, they sort of seen as untouchables in, in a way, you know, at the news organization. And then there's a sudden emergency and Tom and Jane are paired together to go report on this other developing story. Aaron is kind of left out for one reason or another, the, or the president of the news station, uh, Peter Hacks. Who, who yeah. It's not for one reason or other. It's everything we've been talking about. Like Tom, there. He's being groomed. He was a sportscaster. That's where he started. True. And they're yes. bringing him up because they think, okay, this guy could be the next anchor. And who do they have on staff that could do it? The only other person is Aaron. And Aaron has this likability problem. He's right. not going to have charisma on screen. He's not going to, no one's going to enjoy hearing the news from him. You know, even though the news is well written and, and uh, well informed, but he just is not the right messenger. Right. And so Tom reports on the story with Jane, you know, backing him up as a producer. And I think Aaron goes home in protest and gets really pissed off. And as the show is airing, there's a great sort of sequence where, you know, Jane is in the studio working with Tom. Aaron is angrily calling Jane on the phone and kind of suggesting questions for Tom to ask. So it's literally like Aaron suggesting to Jane, who then's talking to Tom in his earpiece. And the way that they sort of all kind of work together in this way is very interesting. And, and ultimately, Tom ends up coming out ahead in, in this uh, reporting story. And he looks he looks good afterwards. And like you said, Gil, he is groomed to be the next big thing. And so after this, a lot of success comes his way. Well, yeah, I mean, this is where that part we were talking about before the the argument with the, the network news head, whatever that guy, uh, whatever his position was. Oh, the president? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, uh, you know, doesn't it, is it hard being right all the time, you know, or is... Oh, know, right, 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 yeah. You're great being the smartest person in the room. No, it's terrible. And, right. you know, it's just, it's such a fun, pithy line. You could see people just being like, you'd almost like champion it, but she loses that fight, you know? And that's just, that's the way that this movie is. You know, it has the trappings of, you know, I see this film categorized under like romantic comedy and stuff. Right. But it is very clearly not a romantic film because none of them end up together and you don't want them to end up together because they're all really shitty. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a comedy, but it's it's just sort of like in the dialogue. I, I would call it more of a drama. Like the situation is dramatic, even though there are like funny things that happen. It feels just a very realistic comedy to me. Yeah, yeah. to me, more so than realistic. It's I think it's even fatalist because I it's think sure. the, the ending is definitely not this happy ending. The, the movie seems to be staking its claim against the sort of style over substance because it it sort of is championing, I think, the substance approach and by the end of the film, it's not a happy ending. Like you said, they kind of, right. they end up working together, right? She ends up embracing Tom and, and working with him. That's, that's not where she was in the right before the jump seven years forward. Like she was, I don't want to have to do with you. I'm not embracing this. And I don't think the film is trying to convince us that, Oh, in those seven years, Tom completely changed his ways. And is all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden believes in the integrity of the news. Like this movie, I think through Aaron's character more so than anyone, he's, he's the one who recognizes that, 
what he's fighting for, for himself, for, you know, this integrity, for his view of, of the news is, is kind of a lost cause. And that's why he goes to Portland. He's like, there's he nothing gives up. Right. Yeah. I'm never going to be the thing in New York. I have to go and fight for my little corner of the universe, have a family, whatever, grow up. And, you know, just that line at the end, just, Hey, if you ever get bored in Portland and he just goes, why? Yeah. And, and Daniel, like your, you know, your, your Yatesahara, Yatesah Tov stretch that I just, I want to run through the film. I actually think that's, that's totally in there. I mean, they, Tom, he calls Tom, Aaron calls Tom's character, the devil. So it's not right. even, you're not stretching. It's right, in there. That's true. It is and, in there. And I think this movie is, you know, it really is through this angle. It, it's, it's Holly Hunter. It's Jane. It's her character, Jane kind of, and her, her struggle with how much am I going to embrace this style to progress my career and, and, you know, join this relationship kind of thing. And, and how much am I going to recognize and, and champion integrity the way I want to. And I think that final scene she has where she, she doesn't go on the trip where she confronts Tom. I think that's kind of her last stand. That's like this big moment where she's, I'm going to push for integrity and she, she can make that point to herself, but on the national standpoint and like the broadcast news aspect, that that's not being carried over beyond that. And even for her, she can have this very powerful moment at the airport, but it's not going to last beyond that. And, you know, news, it's going to go the direction that we know from being in society, it's gone in over the last couple of decades. You know, even with that, even with her making her stand over this, uh, creative decision that Tom made for his news report, I think we're meant to see a parallel with what she did at the beginning of the film with that veteran coming home thing, right? The scene you were talking about at the beginning. Oh, we got to edit this into it because mm-hmm. what's the editorial value of adding a Norman Rockwell painting into this story about veterans coming home, right? And that's just artistic flourish too. So she's not that much different from Tom even in the beginning. And she is, what I think is that when she finds out that he edited the tape, that he um, turned it around, did some acting, what I think is that she is looking for an excuse to end it with Tom. She's trying to find a way. And she's, she's standing on this hill that like is still just made of sand. Like it doesn't have that much substance underneath it either. So we should just say for context, towards the end of the film, Tom releases a piece about date rape and he uh, interviews one of the victims. There is a cutaway of him just like sort of crying on cue and like one like lone tear streams down his face and everyone's like, oh my God, Tom, you're amazing. Aaron, in some sort of casual conversation with Tom, learns that they only had one camera. It was an offhanded like discussion they were having. And then as Jane is kind of going to the airport with Tom and she's sort of made up her mind that, or she's trying to make up her mind, Aaron then gives her this little nugget of information saying, oh, by the way, this is like a faked shot that he filmed after the fact. She goes back and she looks at the tape and she does find out that, yes, he, he had faked it. Gil, I, I, when, I like your point about getting the Rockwell picture in there, because obviously that's you're not you're not fabricating, you know, crying in the same way like right. she was upset at Tom for. But that is still we're manipulating the audience. It's meddling. It's manipulation. It reminds me of a much earlier scene in the film. We were talking about when her and Aaron are capturing the war footage. And, you know, one of the camera crew that she's working with instructs someone to put on their boots. Put on the boots. No, Manny, no. What the hell? No, stop, stop, stop. Stop. We are not here to stage the news. You wait and you see what they do. Sir, you you can do whatever you want. It's your choice. 
Right, that's as the person is already putting on their boots. Yeah, she's saying it like very audibly and like so that they will hear. And he puts on the boot, exactly. And then that becomes like the final image when they actually create the news report. That's like the powerful image is them putting on the boot. And it's right. like, you're right. She 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 outlined her principles, of course. She said, you know, I don't like I stand against people manipulating the footage to get you to put on the boots when you weren't actually gonna. But that doesn't stop her from using a moment that clearly had already been guided, I guess, to a certain extent from from using it and daniel it seems like you, you see a stretch there is i see a stretch here now now hear me out this is a this is maybe a jumbo stretch but like yeah. hear me out so i feel like for those who are familiar with like the intricacies of talmud and jewish law there's nothing that jews love more than like a loophole and like a if he happens to be putting on his boot and the camera's already there then let's film it but let's not tell him to so like they the end result is the same like you're saying but there is a bit of a loophole. So I feel like that maybe could be a bit of a stretch in sort of capturing what we need to get the job done and sort of, uh, you know, like I said, jumbo stretch. Maybe it's tr- stretch of the episode, but I just thought, you know, no, nothing, I think that's good, like a loophole to, to sort of get the end result. You know, now that you're talking about, you know, Tom's uh, piece, this brought me into the part of the film that I thought aged the worst is okay. the sexual <laughs> politics. Sure. Of this film, uh, or at least of Aaron's character, really specifically. A lot of touching. A lot of touching. Yeah. You know I'm saying like he was just very grabby and like kissing he was grabby. her. He, I mean, he kisses her, you know. Even seven years later, when he's already married, he's like kissing her and they like almost kiss on the cheek or they. He does have so much of this like nice guy syndrome in him, in this character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is. You know, it's so funny to me that speech that you're that he's the devil speech. At the end of it, he goes, and I'm in love with you. How do you like that? I buried the lead, which is an insane line to say, because that is the third time in the movie that he's confessed his love to her. Like, it's not a secret at this point. You know, he has already kissed her. He has already been like, I wish you were two people so I could tell my friend about the great girl I know. You know, like he has said this several times and he keeps pushing and she is very clearly just not interested in him. But the movie wants to frame this as a love triangle. But it's really not a love triangle at all. It's she has this friend who keeps creeping on her. When the report gets broadcast, you know, and this is a story about date rape. This is 1987. This movie came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I assume this movie, this issue was sort of on the back burner, probably wasn't touched on. I mean, today we just call it rape. Back then it was it had its own name called date rape. Right. It was the idea that, you know, sexual violence uh, often occurs with someone that that a woman already knows, not a stranger. Right? right. And now we know that that's probably the majority of sexual violence happens in that way. Right. And it comes on screen and Aaron's reaction to is it is like, oh, are we reporting on Nookie now? Like, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. And it's just it's super cringy. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. And like, you know, that ending thing where he where he tells her about Tom's manipulating the footage. That is also a long speech where he is just just dumping his anger on her over his oh, yeah. over her rejection at him. And mm-hmm. it just felt so skeevy and so familiar to things we see today. And in that scene where she's at his apartment after the correspondence dinner. Like, I think in a modern movie, if you're making this movie today, you might even probably put in a moment where he's standing in front of the door, stopping her from leaving. In this movie, I don't know if that occurred to them. Probably didn't need it. Like, I'm glad they didn't because it shows that, like, even though he has these feelings, he's not a rapist, you know? 
but he is a creepy, you know, nice guy dude who thinks he deserves uh, this woman's affection just for being the smartest and the funniest, you know? Right. It's one of these things where, I mean, there's a lot I found like to me, the most interesting stuff was really the the relationship pieces, like the conversations that they're having individually between Tom and Jane and between Aaron and Jane, like these apartment chats or the, you know, these office chats. And I feel like there's a lot of comparisons and similarities I found between, you know, they're both echoing the same line. Just give me one minute. Like they both said the same thing. They both have Jane messing with their ties in various parts in the film. I think initially when Tom goes on screen, like she's helping him with the tie or maybe she's helping him pick a tie and Aaron as well. I just feel like they're two sides of the same coin. This is like her two paths diverge in the forest kind of thing. And she could go one way or the other, another theoretically, but there's never a moment where she's even considering Aaron for a second. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I guess he's just one of these nice guys, like the nerdy guy in the high school movie or whatever, who's like so in love with his like study partner. He doesn't realize that she's going after the quarterback and he's Mm -hmm. just like, he's so preoccupied and like existing in this fantasy where he's going to end up with her and she doesn't even consider him. But I think the fact that, you know, when he does, when he does confront her and she rejects him, he just gets super pissed off and lays into her. I have to be someplace. Now? I told what's his name, Tom, that I'd meet him. Call him up. It can wait, right? I don't know. I may be in love with him. Get out of my house now. I want you out of here. Get out of here. I'm not kidding. Get out of here. You go to hell. I think, Gil, what you were talking about, you know, this sort of nice guy syndrome is, you know, what we would call it in a film like today or, you know, even a word to throw out like a word like an incel or something that we would, that we might call it in a movie like today is is a big part of his character. He's this very self-pitying, this almost wisecracker. You, you get this sense that he's using his humor as a sort of deflection and this, totally. you know, I'm going to like joke with the world. And, you know, after giving him this really unflattering portrait that we've just kind of outlined in the last couple of minutes, I wanted to ask you about something you said before we started filming, where you talked about how Aaron is probably the most sort of Jewish coded character of the film. You know, when we were yeah. talking about how this is a Jewish film and I think this ties in definitely. So I want to hear how you think that connects with this Jewish persona, because, you know, in a movie sure. we've discussed earlier on the podcast, we talked about, you know, City Slickers, where that's also a movie with a character that's a little nebbish and a little maybe not as, you know, quote unquote, toxic as the character we're watching yeah. in this film, but definitely has those same sort of wisecracking, joking, you know, nebbish qualities. So h- how do you look at this Aaron character through this sort of Jewish coded lens? There's so much in him. There's so many layers to him. So, you know, this is James L. Brooks, a Jewish director, making a movie about a lot of waspy characters. And the one character who cannot break through and find success in this world is the one that can't really hide their Jewishness, right? And I think that it's almost a comment on... 20th century American Judaism, where there's a lot of like, hey, we're an upwardly mobile group. Maybe we can find ourselves among the waspish world. And you see this being described even on uh, Mrs. Maisel today, right? You have like the well-behaved Jews who are accepted by society and the ones that are still in the schmata business, right? And Aaron, even though he's the smartest, he's the brightest, he's the funniest, it's almost his Jewishness 
that is the barrier to entry into this world or even to affection from this woman. You know, it's um, all of those things that are Jewish coded stereotypes, not just nebuchadnezzar, self-pitying neuroses, but even the sexual, I want to say sexual focus. You know, this comes from, you know, I think we see it a lot in like Philip Roth books and things like that. I think there is a stereotype of Jewish men that are obsessed with sex that they can't or won't have. Right. I do know that this comes from like ancient medieval European stereotypes about Jewish men being desexualized, that Jewish men are more feminized, Jewish women are more masculinized in this, in these old stereotypes. Like even the idea of the Jewish mother, I just, I learned this not that long ago that the stereotypes of the Jewish mother, the reason it's she's overbearing and loud and whatever are because those are masculinized traits. And that is the intersection of anti-Semitism and transphobia. And you realize that, oh, all this stuff is tied in together. And this, so even Aaron, being sex obsessed or or love obsessed and not able to requite it it's almost he's almost shylock right he's like he just can't be part of this society he has to kind of slink away like that's what he has to do and i know that's like a lot of depth and but but it is in there the layers are in there of like I can't be part of this waspy society. And also I kind of covet this waspy woman that I can't have. All that stuff is in there with like the Jewish coding. I wanted to add a couple of things, you know, just in terms of like Aaron's desire to have a family is kind of interesting in that both Jane and Tom don't seem to have that sort of singular focus. Like I think they mention at the beginning or some at some point, you know, where do you see yourself? I want to have a family. And that doesn't come from Jane, you know, or Tom so much and then we do flash forward and we see his like frizzy haired kid at, with him at some sort of dinner and tom makes some sort of comment oh we see where that comes from kind of thing yeah who by the way has the most waspish name you could give a jewish kid his name is clifford right <laughs> yeah like, and that shows you some of the psychology of this character too like what does he want he wants to be uh, mm. sort of upwardly mobile in waspish white America and his frizzy hair is a barrier to entry to that. Maybe they're alluding to the fact that he may have intermarried and then sort of like given up his Jewishness and married mm-hmm. someone who, to whom, you know, having a kid named, you know, Benjamin or Yehuda or something obviously Jewish, you know, maybe that's sort of where the line ends with him. Yeah. That I, you know, I don't know if this works or not, but I feel like sort of Jane sort of has, very like strong, like Jewish mother vibes in terms of being very like controlling and then also like very doting on them and like treating in, in some scenes, treating both Tom and Aaron like, you know, siblings or, you know, she's like the older sister to some of them, you know, like fixing their ties and coaching them and, re- and, and really like sort of really helping them out a lot. And at some point they also feel so comfortable, like they both feel Tom and Aaron both feel so comfortable, like yelling at her and sort of really giving her you know, the unvarnished truth about how they're feeling. So just the whole dynamic is, I thought was really good in that, like, it also wasn't very like consistent. They're, they're flawed characters, but I think that's sort of like what you're saying, Gil, it, it sort of made them three-dimensional and sort of more relatable as, as opposed to just being, I'm a perfect person. And, you know, cause that's like less yeah. enjoyable. Yeah. This is not a Nora Ephron kind of romantic comedy about a workplace, right? It's not, it's not that these are three flawed characters that you do not want to, you know, spend time with in the world. I thought that that Jewish mother thing, I think that that is interesting. I do think it's kind of on the wrong track because 
I think that the Jewish stereotype, the Jewish mother stereotype actually requires two characters. It requires the mother and the suffering man that she harangues. I don't think she is the Jewish mother stereotype because all of the men around her are welcoming of her fixing, right? She, it's not, it's not treated as divergent from what she's supposed to be doing, right? She's clearly like a trailblazer, but she's not like she's the first woman producer or whatever, but it's not, there's no one who's the antagonist who thinks she shouldn't be doing that, right? Right. And if I haven't said so already, you know, this is totally like a, a feminist film. And in some ways, I feel like, you know, Jane, you know, for all of her flaws or whatever, I feel like she is completely, like you said, trailblazing and sort of leading. I was rooting for her the whole time, whether or not she she ended up with Tom or Aaron. I didn't really care, like seeing her sort of succeed and sort of sticking to her ethics and putting her front and center, I think was really awesome. I think you could watch this movie and think of each of those three characters as the main character, depending on when you watch it. If you want, you can watch it in the morning and be a Tom person and in the evening and be an Aaron person. And I, th- I feel like they all get essentially equal screen time because it really is a, you know, it's a three banger. It's a three person piece, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I agree that they all have their own arcs. I think, you know, in like this sort of like just sticking with this sort of Jewish coded, this, you know, Aaron Altman character and just where he kind of ends up. It does feel like and and kind of pulling in also this, you know, Daniel, what you were saying about Jane's character kind of being this, if not quite a Jewish mother, at least, I guess I'm connecting all of our ideas because Gil, what you were saying about, you know, sort of the masculinized female that I guess he would be attracted to because as this sort of nebbish Jewish stereotype, he's kind of looking for that. And what I think is so interesting about his character is that he just, it feels like his whole pursuit and and we didn't even mention, but I think also Tom, you know, represents in the same way you're saying that he is trying to, that Aaron is trying to kind of, you know, pass as this, you know, in this American assimilated world, it's like he is going up against this, you know, sort of a very traditionally handsome blonde haired, you know, more classically, you know, sort of Christian American that is sort of in the hot seat. But what I think just with the point that I wanted to make going back to the arc of these characters, it's, it goes back to the fatalist thing where I think Aaron's character is just, you know, that he has all these pursuits and he wants this career success. He wants this romantic success. And by the time, you know, and uh, what you were saying about him wanting to be Americanized, wanting him to pass, wanting him to embrace that, he he fails ultimately. He moves yeah. out to Portland. He has a kid yeah. who looks exactly like him. You know, he can give him the name that he wants, but it's a curly haired Jewish, you know, looking kid. Like it's it's ultimately a very failed pursuit for this character, you know, top to bottom through the end of the film to the end of the film. And honestly, none of the characters really achieve the success that they're looking for. You know, maybe, maybe Tom a little bit. He gets the, you know, he gets the top job, but is it with the woman that he loves the most? I'm not sure. Tom can't stop himself from succeeding. You know, he, he can't get in his own way enough. Yeah, but, but he's still self-pitying. He's like, But when they heard my reaction, they thought I was kidding. I told them I'd be their anchor, but I didn't want to be the managing editor. That there were people better qualified than I to control the content. And if there weren't, we were all in trouble. <laughs> None of them can escape. But like, and everyone in the audience thinks she's joking. They think she's. They think he's being self. But he's not. 
Not at He's all. just as self-pitying as he was, you know, the first scene that we met him. That's true. I don't I don't think it should go unsaid in any discussion about the sexual politics of this movie. So William Hurt just passed away uh, last week. Right. And I'm sure this is something that other people knew from reading Marley Matlin's biography. I didn't know until I started reading articles about William Hurt. But during this time that this movie was made, he was with Marley Matlin and he was with her during when he made uh, Children of a Lesser God. And she says that he abused her uh, physically and sexually. That's, uh, I guess, uh, well known. Uh, I didn't know it until recently. It did color my viewing of this movie, knowing that. Whatever, rest in peace, I guess. But, you know, there has to be a special place in hell for someone who abuses a disabled woman, you know? Yeah, so, it's uh, awful. So, so take that grain. If you are going to watch this movie, <laughs> remember that William Hurt was an abuser, uh, was not a great person. Try to enjoy the movie for what it is. So far, Albert Brooks and Holly Hunter, by all accounts, are still pretty good people. So, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> as far as we know, Albert Brooks famously, you know, changed his name from Albert Einstein. Right. I think that's a mistake, but you know. Yeah, he could have been the the most famous Albert Einstein. And brothers with Super Dave Osborne. Yeah, who also passed away not that long ago. This is going to be a new documentary about him soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to checking it out. Before we move on, I want to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will rate the film on one to five Jewish stars in terms of content, themes, and cast and crew. Yeah, and I'm going to suggest an addition to your rating systems. Okay, I'm excited to hear it. We'll be right back. And we're back with Gil Barone talking about broadcast news. All right, so now the moment we've been waiting for. Before the break, Gil had mentioned that he has an additional criteria by which we should measure our films. I'm so curious to hear about it, Gil. Yeah, I think so. You guys talk about the creatives. Mm -hmm. You talk about Jewish themes. Yep. And what else? And overall Jewish content, like the story, the plot story. Sure. Uh, I think that you should add in is this an example of good Jewish representation or bad Jewish representation? Not a bad idea. Mm -hmm. So even something can be a very Jewish film, but can still be bad Jewish representation, right? Sure. A film like maybe Uncut Gems, not such good Jewish representation. Yeah. But. But still very Jewish. But still very Jewish, whereas like a Yentl, you know, depending on whose perspective, you know, could be a good or bad Jewish representation. I like right. that. Is I this like good that. for the Jews, I guess? Oh, is maybe a that's bit. a, is a good more way like pop culture way to say it. Is this good for mm-hmm. the Jews? I like that. Yeah. Like <laughs> a Kiddush Hashem, right? Or a, what would be the translation for that? A sanctification of God's name versus sort of an embarrassment of God's name, I guess, is mm-hmm. the, uh, if we want to get, you know, colloquial about it. But let's talk about the film and how we thought about it. Maybe even throwing in, is this good for the Jews rating, you know, in your honor, Gil, we'll add that on. Sure. Broadcast news. What a film. Okay. So for me, content wise, I feel like plot wise, there was nothing Jewish about this film whatsoever. Like you said, Aaron was coded Jewish and he was maybe the only person in the film who was Jewish. James L. Brooks wrote the film and directed the film. So you got sort of two well-known Jews in the cast and crew for me. Thematically, I feel like we're verging into stretch territory because, you know, our sort of duality between the, the good inclination, the devil and the, and the not so good inclination. I think like ethics could work into it as well. Yeah. Um, I would probably say this is like a just 
in terms of our rating, you know, and also I would say that Aaron is not good for the Jews in terms of representation. So I'd go like two out of five stars. Yeah, I'll agree with most of that. I think that, you know, creatively it's James L. Brooks. I think that he brings his Jewishness to everything that he writes just in terms of his sense of humor and his sense of the world. And he likes to talk about sort of um, universal justice, uh, you know, people getting their comeuppance. I think there is some Jewishness there, but obviously the number of creatives, I don't know if the, if the film editor was Jewish, you know, I don't know, you know, but he is the director, writer and producer. So it all comes down to him. I do think the fact that the movie is a very, intellectual film and sort of begs analysis. I do think that that in a meta way is very Jewish. It's not just a simple film. It's not just a simple romantic comedy or a workplace drama. It is a movie that really does reward rewatching because you see different things in it every time. Um, so I do think that that part has a, uh, has some Jewish value. Is it good for the Jews? No, I don't think it's good Jewish representation. I think the ideal of good Jewish representation is a character who is incidentally Jewish. And so, we, you know, you were mentioning Uncut Gems a minute ago. I actually, I, now thinking about it, that's almost the ideal of Jewish representation because the character is going on his, on his way. He's doing his life that is not particularly, his plot is not particularly Jewish related. But in his life, he is casually celebrating Passover casually celebrating Shabbat, casually, whatever, just the Jewishness is part of his background and doesn't need to be plot focused. And so you get to have a Jewish character who exists out in the world and sort of normalizes the Jewish experience. Is Uncut Gems quote unquote good for the Jews? No, he's sort of a Shylocky kind of that kind of character. And I think that Aaron Altman similarly is, you know, uh, sex obsessed does not great for the Jews, but in my other definition of like, do they show sort of incidental Judaism in their lives? Certainly not. Nothing that I saw in his apartment decoration was Jewish, doesn't say anything about celebrating or studying or whatever, anything Jewish. There's nothing, there's no Jewishness in this guy's life that we know of. And so how would you rate the film one to five Jewish stars? Oh gosh. Using all those aforementioned uh, points. And metrics. I love that we can analyze it. So, and I know that it is a classic. I do think things haven't aged well. Um, I'm going to go with a four because I think I want to be a little holistic about it and I want to give it the opportunity to grow, to grow back on me in a few years. Okay. Harry. So, I'm going to, I'm going to think about like it's Jewishness, right? The ranking that I'm going to try to give it is like how much of a Jewish film, so to speak, would this be? And, you know, I, I think we, we made some good points. There are stretches in there that I do think hold, I think the, the devil angel thing, the angels on your shoulder, yes. the, uh, the Yetzirah, Yetzirah Tov. It's definitely there because we want it to be there. And I don't think we have to stretch too far for it. So sure. that's something, you know, religious, biblical, Jewish, whatever you want to call it, I think does exist there. But part of me thinking about how Jewish this is actually goes to the, the category that you were that you mentioned, Gil, just about, you know, is this a good look for the Jews? Is this a bad look for the Jews? And I kind of think the answer in the case of this film might be neither, because as much as we want to make the case that this is a Jewish film, 
There's nothing identifiably Jewish necessarily about him to the point that it could change anyone's view on, on a Jew. I mean, it's possible someone watching the movie might look at that and say, oh, I can tell which one of these is the Jewish character and which one of these are sort of the Anglo-Saxon waspy characters. And, you know, there's there's a very clear read there. And I don't think we hold up so well in that regard. But I think it's not very strongly, you know, Jewish beyond that, even though I have been convinced of some of its Jewishness. I, I think the, the protagonist as a sort of 80s era, you know, coded Jewish lead, you know, that like is like that quippiness that, you know, that slapsticky, like, I, I think that is there. And for that reason, I'm not getting my sort of zero out of five Jewish stars that I might have otherwise done. I think it's I'm going to give it like a one Jewish star because there is something Jewish about that. And that that gives him like this character is Jewish if you choose to view it that way. But if you don't, you're not walking out of this like mm, that's an interesting, you know, Jewish film that we just watched there. So I'm going to stick with my, you know, might be my lowest ranking I've given to a movie on the show so far in yeah. terms of its Jewishness. In terms of the quality of the film, I actually really enjoyed it and would probably yeah, give it, like, like you know, it. a much, a much higher. I'm, you, you know, you mentioned Gil that when you were uh, 20, 22, 23 years old, that's when you had your, you know, you really liked it. I'm, I'm only 23, so I, yeah. I guess I'm in that phase where I'm really enjoying the movie now. But um, but in, in terms of its Jewishness, it's probably only about one star for me. Daniel, where do you think you were at? Do you think that like when you were younger and maybe a little more uh, interested in the writing side of things, do you think that you uh, would have given it a higher rating than you? You not just not not in terms of Jewishness, but as right. a film. Yeah, I mean, I think I enjoyed the film much more as just like a film, as opposed, yeah. you know, I think it doesn't for me succeed as a Jewish film. But I, you know, looking at it as a normal film, there are sequences and parts of the film that I really enjoyed. I think a lot of the recurring bits, you know, the taxi cab thing, which we didn't really touch about, you know, she she's constantly in the cab. And every time she's in the cab, she's giving very specific direction. Her whole notion of like control and then sort of towards the end, trying to let go of control and still needing to give control at the end. Like there's a lot of funny gags, Albert Brooks, you know, pouring vodka and then stirring frozen orange juice in a glass. I think it mixes comedy and sort of drama, a little bit of romance in there. So it kind of has it all. And I really love that the characters were written as, like we said, sort of three-dimensional. They're all sort of flawed in their own ways. They're not really consistent. And they sort of seem like real people, you know, um, you know sort of exaggerated people. But still, this seems like very high-strung sort of situation, you know, being in a news station and and... I can see how it's affected all of them sort of differently. Not Tom as much because he's the devil, but overall, I, I really did enjoy the writing of the film, the acting in the film and stuff like that. I thought the parts didn't age well, like you said. and But overall, yeah, I, I did enjoy it. Gil, thank you so much for joining us today on uh, Jews on Film to discuss broadcast news. And thanks for suggesting it. it. It would not be one that I would have normally picked out. Is there anything you'd like to plug at this time? Uh, you can follow me on all the things at GJ Baron, G-J-B-A-R-O-N. Uh, I'm very funny. Uh, but <laughs> also, I have my show. It's called Your Late Night Show Tonight. Every month, a different comedian hosts their own talk show in their own voice, in their own point of view. These are all comedians you know and love. Uh, you can check out clips on our YouTube or check out our Instagram at Your Late Night. Uh, you will not regret it, I promise. Fantastic. And is this a... Uh online show or it's an in-person show both yeah so uh, during the pandemic we were on a venue called nowhere comedy club uh generally we have been uh, at the pack theater in hollywood uh, that's where we started and that's where we are back to but we are 
Uh, you're going to have to stay tuned for some updates over whether we are still broadcasting it uh, over Zoom and where you can get tickets. You can people over the pandemic were able to watch it worldwide. So uh, we want to get back to that and make sure that people all over the world can see our shows. Fantastic. That sounds awesome. We will definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, I want to thank you again for coming out. And um, I'm really curious to hear about why you think that Dirty Dancing is an anti-Semitic film. Can we tell you now? Can <laughs> <laughs> we tell you all about it? Okay. Uh, anything to plug at this time, Harry? Only the podcast. Keep listening. If you made it this far, hopefully you make it this far to the next episode. All right. Well, thanks so much. Bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Daniel Zana and Harry Ottensaucer. Harry Ottensaucer edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.